This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I find that uh, for, for me, uh, me, myself, and I, if I could say it that way, over the past year I've struggled more with discouragement and even low-grade depression than perhaps ever before in my life. And I've always been kind of steady Eddie, even Stephen, uh, I, I don't get too high, I don't get too low, my emotions are just kind of level and boring. Uh, but over this last year, I'm just kind of opening my heart to you, I've struggled with discouragement, and, and many of you have told me the same thing. You, you, you've struggled, this has been a tough time. And even though most of us have, we still have a lot going for us, you know, the majority of us still have at least some form of income. Uh, we have a roof over our heads, we have clothes on our back. Some in this community, yes, they're food insecure, meaning they sometimes worry about having a consistent and regular supply of food. They worry about the next meal. Yet, thanks to the food programs that are now available in our community, most people do have some food. And so, overall, we're we're not in horrible, horrible straits as they are in some other parts of the country or in the world. But but having said that, it's still really hard for us to feel good about life. We don't feel good about life under a pandemic. We're, we're weary of the quarantines. We're weary of masks. We're weary of vaccines. You know, the talk about it, not, not to mention that the death of friends and family is, is heartbreaking. Last week, uh, Debbie Hubbard lost her sister to COVID. We, as I said in my prayer, we lost another church member to COVID. Then last, in, in the last week in, in, in Bolivia, um, We've lost four more of our pastors, a pastor's wife, and uh, one of the pastor's wife were, were, were dear friends of mine. In fact, the pastor and his wife, they died 11 hours apart with COVID. Tuesday evening, I listened in on the Zoom call. It was there, they have a wake, and, and they're supposed to bury the, the bodies within 24 to 48 hours because they don't embalm, but they had a wake there where people kind of gather around, and this was by Zoom. And it was hard to accept the reality as I, I remember Stanley was his name and the many ministry times we shared together. In fact, he was a choir director, a musician, and he and my wife, they had uh, produced a, a recording together. It's not only COVID, but it's also very depressing to me as, as a red-blooded America. I'm not uh, American, and, and I wasn't born here in the States. I was born in another country, but I, I've chosen to be an American um, but, but it's so depressing to see our country divided and polarized. We're, we're polarized politically, almost 50, or almost right down the middle, you know, the red and the blue states. And, and we're polarized socially, we're polarized racially, we're, we're even polarized, can you imagine this? We're polarized religiously. Um, you have close friends, you have immediate family members on different sides of the fence. And, and, and because of our lives right now, just the reality, my fear is that what's happened is we've gotten our eyes off of what is important. We, we, we focused on the current reality, which seems hopeless. So this week in my prayer time, I just felt, I felt the need to stand before you and call a timeout. And, and during this 30-minute or so timeout, may go a little bit longer than that today, but with God's help and with the help of, of, of God's Word, I, I want to try to bring some hope into our lives. 
And I don't want us to be oblivious to the struggles of our country. I want us to quit being consumed by the pandemic. I want us to quit being consumed by our politics. And I want us to get our eyes back on what is really important. Now, to do that, we're going to enlist the assistance of a man named Peter. If you're from a Catholic background, you probably refer to him as St. Peter. He was your first pope. But if you're not from a Catholic background, we just call him Peter. But I love this guy, and he he makes me feel better about myself. He had a quick tongue like I do and like some of you do, and he really needed to attend the class on Wednesday night about me and my big mouth. He needed to be there because instead of being slow to speak, quick to listen, he was quick to speak, slow to listen. Anybody relate? But I still like Peter. Now, Peter originally was a businessman. He had a fishing business with his dad and brother and We probably would have never heard of Peter except for one day a teacher named Jesus showed up after Peter had had one of those really, really frustrating fishing trips. Anybody relate? I know I can. That's the norm for me. They fished all night. How many did they catch? Zero. Goose egg. After they came in that morning... Peter was drying his nets, and he was probably ready to go home and rest a bit because we assume he had been out a good portion of the night. But about this time, a preacher, or or back then they were known as rabbis, shows up, and maybe Peter thinks, you know, while my net's finished drying, I think I'll kill some time, listen to him, maybe I can learn more about the law of Moses. That's what rabbis talked about as a whole. Well, this rabbi named Jesus surprises Peter and walks up to him and says, Peter, let's go fishing. Now, I can imagine Peter saying, wait a minute, who are you? You know, I fish for a living, and yeah, we got skunk last night, but I know what I'm doing. And you, who are you? You know, from what I understand, your background is construction. You're, you're, you're a carpenter, and recently, without even going to Bible college or seminary, you decided to become a preacher. So even though Peter may not have expressed his feelings out loud yet, no doubt he was thinking, Jesus, what do you know about fishing? Obviously not much because right now we're in the heat of the day. And if if you're fishing with nets as we do around here, you really need to do that at night because the water is cooler, the air temperature is cooler, the fish are more likely to move around and get caught in the net. But Jesus said, Peter, take me fishing. So Peter, maybe just being polite to the new rabbi in town, he takes Jesus fishing. You all remember what happened. They got into a school of fish, had the catch of a lifetime. Oh. They caught so many fish. Remember, the, the nets were about to break. They are about to tear, and, and the boat was about to sink. Well, after that, Jesus said to Peter, you remember the words? Follow me. And Peter did. Uh, after a fishing trip like that, you probably would too. But that moment was a red-letter date in Peter's life because he then stepped into the pages of history as an ex-fisherman, and became an evangelist. And except for a little hiccup during the crucifixion where he denied Christ and at times was, knowing, was known as being a bit impulsive, Peter is known as a dedicated follower of Jesus. In fact, something that's interesting, and maybe some of you knew this, but Peter was killed for his faith, and, and as they were about to crucify him, he said, hey, I'm not worthy to die and be crucified like my Savior. And, and, and the Romans had a really sick sense of humor, and they said, well, we can fix that. And so tradition says that they crucified him upside down. 
But anyway, before death, he wrote a couple of letters, and, and the people who gave names to the Bible books weren't very creative, so they were just called First and Second Peter. But in the first letter we have recorded from Peter, he gives us some advice on getting refocused during times of extraordinary challenges as we're facing today. So let's get into our scripture, and I invite you to follow along. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, and today I'll be reading from the New International Version. 1 Peter 3, 13 reads like this. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Now, the context is that Peter was living in a day when it was dangerous to be a Christian. And we don't fully understand that as Americans. Um, yes, in our country, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian values are more under attack than in the past. You know, in, in, in years past, the, the traditional values of the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage were given. You would have to search a long time uh, to find someone that did not believe in those Judeo-Christian values. But, but not now. Even in our own community... Right here in what we call the, the, the buckle of the Bible belt, there are many different views that are almost diametrically opposed to what we believe the Bible teaches. But even with the erosion of those values, we still don't have to be too concerned about persecution. We might get a little snide remark here, you know, there's a holy roller or whatever, but we don't have to worry about dying for our faith at this point. But in Peter's world, where they were under the rule of the Roman Empire, it was dangerous Understand, it was dangerous to be a follower of Jesus. So in this context, Peter goes on and says in verse 15, oh, focus on this, this is so big. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, don't get sidetracked. Don't get your eyes on people because when you're looking at people, you're not looking at God. Also, for us, this scripture would mean set your hearts on Christ and don't be consumed by a pandemic or don't be consumed by a country that's so messed up in their values. And, and by the way, we think that what we're going through today, and, and the word that is way overused today is the word unprecedented. Yeah, I've, I've tried to cut this word out of my vocabulary because it's overused so much. But, but you need to know that what is going on in our day is not unprecedented. Today is no worse than Peter's day. Because back then, during Peter's day, there was political upheaval as there is today. And, and you didn't just get social, angry social media posts. Rather, you got your neck on a chopping block. Furthermore, listen... During that day, there was as much or more social injustice than we have today because slavery was practiced, and this will blow you away, by church people. This was during Peter's day. There was racism. In fact, certain ethnic groups were treated like dogs, literally, and, and they would not be allowed in the temple. They would not be allowed in certain parts of Jerusalem. Not to mention, did you realize that during Peter's day, there was a famine going on that caused a shortage of food. People were hungry. So if you begin to think that what we're witnessing, you know, the political upheaval, the social injustice, the racism, the, the erosion of values is unprecedented, you need to study history. And so Peter was saying, with, with all of the negative is, of, of his day, it was easy for followers of Jesus to get their eyes fixed on the doom and gloom. And so, so Peter said, set your heart on Christ. 
Don't be consumed by the negative. Don't be consumed by what CNN says. And for you Fox Newsers, don't be consumed by what Fox News reports every day. Of course it's bad. That's the way their ratings go up. Catch this. Always be prepared to give an answer. Now, the, the words give an answer come from the Greek phrase that means to give a defense. So be prepared to give a defense to, to whom? And, and this is the phrase that we want to spend some time chewing on today. Always be prepared to give an answer, a defense, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the, what's the next word? Hope. Hope. It's not up there. Hope. Say hope. Despite the dangerous political climate, despite the hunger, despite the erosion of values, despite the social injustice, Peter talks about hope. Give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, what what was Peter saying? Um, Well, as, as I was studying this, what was helpful for me was to first of all understand what Peter was not saying. Peter was not saying, be ready to defend the inerrancy of the Bible. And go on record, I do believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible. The Bible is more than just a good book with good truths. It is God-breathed. I believe that with all of my heart, 100%. And there's a time to defend the Bible, but this is not what Peter was saying. Nor, Nor was Peter saying... Be ready to give a defense for why your church does this or doesn't do this. And I, for one, am thankful Peter wasn't saying that because, you know, churches do some really weird things, even sometimes our church. And, and so when people ask, well, why do you do that? I say, I don't know. I don't have a clue. Thank you, Peter, for not making me do that. Um, nor, nor was Peter saying, be ready to give a defense for Christians who don't always act like Christians. You know, the hypocrites and It's hard to defend church people when they don't always act redeemed. Thank you, Peter, for not making me do that. Nor nor was Peter saying, be ready to give a defense for the book of Revelation where God burns everything up and destroys the environment and doesn't apologize for it. I'm, I'm glad that's not what Peter was saying. Peter wasn't even saying, okay, be ready to defend the political party that you think more closely lines up to the Bible. But here's what Peter was saying. He was saying, if Jesus is your hope, and Peter was talking to people who had chosen to follow Jesus, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, then be ready to defend why you believe he is not only your hope, but why you believe he's the hope of the entire world. You know, unfortunately, today we're focused on everything but Jesus. You know, we're focused on political parties. We're focused on differing social views and differing opinions on masks and vaccines. But Peter is trying to get our eyes back on what is important. And he says, set your heart on Jesus Christ because he's your hope. And I think Peter would have added, you know, when you personally live and travel with someone for three years as he did with Jesus, and you see him die as he did, and you personally see him buried... And then he resurrects, and, and you personally see an empty tomb, and you personally have breakfast with him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's reason enough for him to be your hope. But maybe someone would have said, well, Peter, what about the seven days of creation? Were they literal days or longer periods of time? And I don't know what Peter would have said. I, I know what I would say. 
uh, I would say, you know, I personally believe that they were 24-hour days. But if they weren't, so what? My faith isn't shaken. But, but I think if you would have asked Peter that question, seven days, are they 24 hours or 1,000 years or whatever? I think Peter would have said, look at my eyes. Come on, look at my eyes. Focus. Focus. Focus on the reason for your hope. Okay, well, Peter, what about the dinosaur dilemma? Here's what I think Peter would have said. I don't know. I wonder if he would have said, all I know is that in the books of Psalms and Job and Isaiah and Amos, these books talk about the Leviathan. You can study about it. We think it's some kind of monstrous sea creature. But then Peter might have said, you know, I'm not a paleontologist. I don't study dinosaurs. Focus on the reason for your hope. Oh, okay, well, Peter, can a revival of biblical values happen through the political process? You know, if we can just get the right candidate in power, then that will bring revival to America. Here's what I think Peter would have said. I think he would have looked you right in the eye. And I think he would have said, revival has never come from the government. Revival comes when God's people humble themselves and pray and seek Him and turn from their sins. That's when revival comes. Revival does not come from the government. In fact, just for your information, some some history, and I love certain aspects of history, but Constantine, of course, in the early 300s AD, he had a dream about a cross and really, really bothered him, and uh, so he had the crosses put on shields of their army, and, and, and a lot of you would remember that, that part of history, reading about that. But that was kind of a wake-up call for Constantine, and, and so sometimes we say, well, at that point he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and, and I was studying that, and that's probably not a completely accurate historical statement, but after this dream, evidently what, what happened, steps were taken to transition Christianity into the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. But but what I wanted to point out is that after Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, you would think that Christianity would have taken over and swept the world. Because, you know, the powerful Roman machine was now, you know, in some ways kind of promoting Christianity. That's what I would have thought. But that's not what happened. When it became the dominant religion, if you will study this, you will see that's when the decline of Christianity began to happen. And Christianity turned into a watered-down, powerless, compromised form of Christianity. So, If you've been thinking that if you get the right political candidate in, then America will thrive spiritually, or if you get the wrong one in, then we will go down the tube spiritually, you need to understand that revival historically has never come from the government. There's a tremendous revival taking place right now in some of the Muslim countries. Believe you me, it's not being pushed by the government. There's a tremendous revival taking place in China. And right now, China, you know, it's kind of up and down, kind of like a roller coaster. Sometimes there's a little bit of religious freedom and sometimes not. And, of course, our missionaries that have come back here 
they won't be going back because things are becoming so closed and so tightened. And, uh, but anyway, do you realize that with the government becoming more and more controlling and allowing less and less freedom there in China, do you believe that there is a tremendous revival that's taking place? The government cannot stop revival. You know who stops revival? God's people stop revival when they don't humble themselves, when they don't pray, when they don't seek God, when they don't turn from their wicked ways. That's what determines revival, not a government. Sorry for those of you that thought that. So I think Peter would have said, don't look to the government for a revival of values. Even though I will say, I believe it is our responsibility as Christians to vote and do our best to choose candidates that will reflect principles in God's Word. I believe that's our duty. But revival will not come from the government. Well, okay, Peter. Uh, Wow, you took a long time on that question. How about this one? What about all of the horses and, and the opening of the seals and the judgments in the book of Revelation? And, and Peter might have said, I didn't write the book of Revelation. Ask John. He's the one who wrote that. I don't know. Focus on the reason for our hope. Well, well, Peter, what about the crossing of the Red Sea? Because some say that where the Israelites crossed was only four inches deep, so it was no big miracle that the Israelites could cross over. And Peter might say, well, I don't know about that either, except if that's true, then that was quite a miracle that all of Pharaoh's army drowned in four inches of water. I think Peter would say, I may not have the answers to a lot of questions, but I do know where my hope is. (laughs) My hope is anchored not to a government, not to a country, not to a political party, not to a political process, not from going from social injustice to social justice, not Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter or Masks Matter or Don't Matter or Vaccines Matter or Don't Matter or even Bernie Sanders and his inauguration wardrobe. Sorry. You know, in the early service, I didn't have that in my notes, and I guess God inspired that to come, and so I had to just get that in there. You know, Peter said, my hope, my hope is in a person that lived, died, and then resurrected from the dead, and then he cooked fish for my breakfast on the shores of Galilee. His name is Jesus. He's my hope. Well, Peter then goes on and says something that we need to catch in verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But here it is. Listen, some of you really need to listen to this, okay? Because these are not my words. These are God's words. But do this with, what are those next three words? Gentleness and respect. I think I'm going to stay here for about an hour. Um, You know, this whole thing of, well, I I just call it like it is, or we've got to take a stand somewhere and let the chips fall where they may. Peter would say, wait a minute. When it comes to giving an answer on what you feel is right or wrong, or when it comes to giving an answer on your values, and there's a time for that, but when you do it, make sure it's done with gentleness and respect. In other words, this is not about winning arguments. 
You may be smart enough to win the argument, but in so doing, you lose the person. This is not about humiliating the other person. This is not about, well, Republicans have values that are closer to the Bible, or Democrats have the value of compassion that more closely emulates Jesus. This isn't about any of that. This isn't about a clever put-down. Peter says, give an answer for the hope you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. Now, in my opinion, and, and I happen to be the only one with a live mic right now, so I'm just going to take my liberty to express my opinion. But this is where it seems that in the name of taking a stand, and, and again, there's a place for that, but it seems that today we've lost our sense of gentleness and respect. And here's what we've done. I was just thinking about this this past week. We've justified being mean and disrespectful because we believe that standing up for truth and principles is more important than being gentle and respectful. So as long as we're standing up for biblical principles, we can be mean and ugly because that justifies what we're doing. Ah. And so people have lost respect for Christians because in standing up for what they felt was right, they showed no love and they showed no compassion. So Peter says, look, this isn't about winning debates. This isn't, I don't know how you can vote this way and be a Christian. This isn't about, well, bless God, this is what his word says. This is gently, respectfully, giving the reason for our hope, which is Jesus, his life his death, his resurrection. That's our hope. Well, Peter goes on and, and says, you know, do this with gentleness, respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I think Peter was saying that there are going to be a lot of people that don't believe the way you do. Politically, socially, morally, ethically, and it's going to be natural for them to look for a reason not to like you. And, and, and you do this already. If somebody doesn't vote the way you do politically, you, look, you like to try to find some dirt on them, don't you? And you just kind of keep it in that reserve tank. That way, if you ever need to bring it up, you can. Um, so Peter was saying, live in Christ with good behavior. And that way, when you get some pushback, and you find yourself on the other side of the political aisle or on the other side of, you know, to mask or not to mask or whatever, that they will see your gentleness and respect for them so that even if they don't necessarily agree with you, they will still respect you because of your gentle and respectful spirit. You know, if we all did that, do you realize how greatly that would change social media? Think about that. And instead of all those posts, oh, I will never ever vote for, how can you be so blind? Or how can you be so inconsistent, you idiot? I can't believe you just said that. Being gentle and respectful, quick to listen, slow to speak, would totally revolutionize Facebook. Man, that's good preaching. I say amen. <laughs> Thank you. The story in history that I absolutely love. This is just one of my favorite stories in history. This took place around 100 to 110 
A.D., 70 years or so after Jesus died. Um, during this time, Trajan was the emperor, and different emperors had different attitudes about how much they wanted the people to adore them and to worship them, but Trajan was one that took it to the extreme, and he wanted people to pretty much bow down to him and swear allegiance to him. Well, because of his attitude, persecution broke out in different areas of the Roman Empire against Christians because they wouldn't bow down and they wouldn't swear allegiance to Trajan. So the Jews had a free pass. They, they didn't have to bow down. The Jews had their own religion. And, and so they had kind of worked out a special agreement with the Roman government. And so they were not required to bow down or declare their allegiance to the emperor. But if, but if you were not a Jew and you would not bow down to the emperor, you were in trouble. Well, there was a governor named Pliny, uh, Pliny the Younger. He had an uncle that was Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder had raised little Pliny, and so they called him Pliny the Younger. And true story, you can look this up in history. Pliny the Younger grew up and became a governor in, in a province in, w within a place called Bithynia, and, and it's in, actually in northwest Turkey, the modern day of, of Turkey. One day, Pliny the Younger, like other governors in the Roman Empire, got a letter from Emperor Trajan saying, okay, round up the Christians. They're dangerous to our empire. They're, they're traitors. They're criminals. You need to round them all up. And preserve for us in history. I love history because it, it just brings so much in, in, in to the table here. But you can read a couple of exchanges between Governor Pliny the Younger and Trajan the Emperor. And, and this past Wednesday, I actually went and reviewed some of these documents um, but I want to give you just a small part of some of the communication that took place between Trajan and Pliny the Younger. And in one of the letters, Pliny the Younger said, you, you, you know, um, Emperor Trajan, I really didn't know much about Christianity. So my men and I have done some investigation. We've interrogated some of these Christians. In fact, a few of them we, we interrogated multiple times. We tortured some. In fact, we tortured two women that, we don't know why, but they called them deaconesses. We, we, we tortured them and Others we even put to death. And again, you can read this exchange for yourself. But, but Pliny the Younger said, here's what my men and I have discovered. First of all, we've discovered that there are way more Christians than we originally thought. There's more with us than be with them. Is that what that song says? Um, there aren't only Christians in the cities. There, there are Christians in the villages. There are Christians on the farms. They're, they're scattered everywhere. And, and we had no idea there were so many of them. And, oh, great emperor, it's going to be difficult to round them all up. Furthermore, my men are, are, are wondering, are we to treat all the Christians the same way? I mean, there are men, and we can understand rounding them up, but, but there are women, there, there are small children, and then there are those who are elderly. So, so, emperor, are you wanting us to just round them all up? Even the children, the women, the elderly? Again, this is about 70 years after Jesus died, and he continued on and said, oh, oh great emperor, the, the, the sum and substance of the, the, of the Christian's fault or their error is that they've been accustomed, here's the big problem, they've been accustomed to meeting on a fixed day, which happened to be on Sunday, before dawn, and, and they sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. In other words, plenty of the younger were saying, you know, we've sent some spies and infiltrated their ranks, and, and we've discovered that one of the things they do is to get up long before dawn on Sunday, before they go to work, and in Rome, Sunday for them was just a regular work day, but Christians would get up early, meet together before work. Emperor, we, we find out that they're worshiping this Christ as if he were a god. 
Now, let me just stop and say this is so convicting. These Christians didn't have the privilege of conveniently going to church on their day off like most of us do. And I realize, you know, the pandemic has changed everything. And, you know, I'm glad you've gathered. If you're online, I'm glad you're, you're, you're meeting with us online. Or if you're listening on the radio, I'm, I'm thankful for that. But, you know, these Christians, they wanted to follow the example of the believers in the book of Acts. And so they gathered on the first day of the week, which wasn't the Sabbath. We sometimes say, well, the Sunday is the Sabbath. No, the Sunday is the Lord's day. And so they got up long before dawn on a work day, made sure that they met together to worship their Savior. Now, I want you to try to imagine this. Imagine 2,000 years ago, a group of people who have embraced Jesus as their Savior. They have no Bibles. They have no written literature. All they have are just scraps of letters that somebody delivered from Paul and Peter. But here they're recognizing the importance of gathering together corporately. Well, Pliny the Younger goes on and says, here's, here's what else we found out about them. After they sing songs to Christ as if he's some kind of God, then they bind themselves with an oath. And, and to explain this, the, the rumor in Rome was that these Christians were, were criminals. And, and, and so Pliny the Younger was saying, oh, great emperor, I'm assuming the reason you want us to round them up is because the word on the street is that they're lawbreakers, they're hoodlums, they're dangerous, they're bad people that... Pliny says, as we've infiltrated their ranks and investigated them and tortured them, here's what we found. Each time they meet, they take an oath. Listen, and their oath is not about trying to divide the government or take over. But here's their oath. They take an oath to be the people, to be people of their word, to not commit fraud, to not steal to not commit adultery. And Pliny the Younger said, oh, great emperor, we're finding out that these Christians might be the best citizens in town. And we don't want to cause any problems, but our investigation has led us to wonder why we're arresting them, because they're not criminals. And they're not out to divide the government. Can you imagine what would happen in our communities if tomorrow, a work day, if way before dawn, every Christian gathered with another group of Christians and they sang a couple of songs and made an oath, no fraud, no lying, no theft, no adultery, no bad words. And we're going to do exactly what we say we're going to do and then close in prayer and go to work and live that way. If we did that, if we did that, it would be hard to criticize us as Christians. Well, one of Pliny the Younger's letters ends this way. He says, oh, great emperor. You know, something else. He said, we, we found that it was their custom to partake of food, but it was ordinary and innocent food. And now, now, what did that mean? Well, this is a big deal because the rumor was that Christians were not only criminals, but they were cannibals. They were rumored to eat the flesh of their children and drink their blood. Now, here's a pop quiz. Where do you think they got that idea of Christians eating people's flesh and drinking their blood? Any idea? John chapter 6. I read this in my devotions this past week. Just... Um, 
you know, where Christ says, you know, about communion, it's my flesh and blood. And, and so that's where the rumor came that Christians were cannibals. But Pliny says, oh, great emperor Trajan, we've infiltrated their ranks, and, and they didn't know who we were. And, and when they came to this part of their gathering, we found out that the food they ate was just ordinary food. It wasn't human flesh. It was innocent food. This whole thing about being cannibals, emperor, is just not true. Again, you can go to history and read this. So, oh, oh great emperor, what do we do with these people? They're not doing anything wrong. They're, they're not criminals. They're not trying to take over the government. They're perhaps the best citizens of Rome. And, and, and 2,000 years later, we're here. Not because of what somebody just believed about Jesus, but we're here. Not just because of somehow someone talked about Jesus, but we're here because of how they lived their life for Jesus. We're here because people who came before us had a talk that matched their walk. So look what Peter says in verse 17. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. In other words, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. There's no way around it. It will happen. But Peter says, if you're going to suffer, make sure it's for doing good. Why not lose a job because you told the truth instead of losing the job because you got caught lying? If you're going to suffer, do so not because you posted a scathing social media post and, and let someone have it for being too liberal or too conservative or because, you know, maybe you were a jerk at work or you told someone off and rather suffer for doing good, maybe going the extra mile, maybe for loving and helping someone that didn't deserve it. If you're going to suffer, do so because you did the right thing instead of doing the wrong thing. So today, as we uh, wrap things up, I want to give three quick wrap-up thoughts. And I told you before that in Bible college, I learned that if you have to review your sermon at the end, you failed miserably. But I'm going to do that just in case I failed miserably. Three quick things. Number one, get your eyes off of people. Get your eyes off of all of the negative and discouraging stuff that most of us are feeding on and instead set our heart on Jesus. Number two, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Are things dark? Yes, things are dark. But as someone said, I believe it was Adrian Rogers once said, the late Adrian Rogers that I respected so much, a Baptist preacher out of Memphis, said things are dark, but they are gloriously dark. Because in the darkness, the light of Jesus shines more brightly. There is a darkness, but isn't it a glorious darkness right now? You know, Jesus lived and died and resurrected, and, and that's our hope. And, and no government, nor political party is our hope. No vaccine is our hope. Jesus is our hope. And Jesus is doing quite well. Thank you very much. Number three, when you do feel you need to say something, take a stand, and, you, and it'll be necessary, do it with gentleness and respect. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So is there hope today? Yes, there's hope. It's very clear to us today that 
the hope doesn't come from man-made things, man-made programs, but our hope comes from Jesus. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.